This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, February 20, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In this episode, we'll talk with Dr. Michael Carson about wokeism. But before we get started, I have an announcement from the League of Women Voters. To vote in the April municipal elections, get registered now. Deadline to register here in Missouri is March 9th. Check your own state for your deadline to register. Request your absentee ballot now if you will not be able to vote in person on election day. The League of Women Voters of Metro St. Louis wants every voice to be heard in elections and is here to help you. If you have any questions about elections, how to register, or how to request an absentee ballot, ask the League. You can contact the St. Louis chapter of the League of Women Voters at lwvstl.org. That's lwvstl.org. Or call the League Voter Hotline at 314-961-6869. That's 314-961-6869. Remember, do this right away. The topic today is wokeism. I've been on a quest of sorts lately. I'm trying to bring some definition to that term. I'm not comfortable using the term wokeism yet as I'm still trying to figure out the details. In my quest, I found various definitions that don't always all agree with each other, but overall they seem to indicate that wokeism refers to a sort of arrogance or righteousness that sprouts from a sense of false enlightenment. I mean, it's like walking up to a semi-pro golfer and saying, hey, I watched Tiger Woods on TV, so now I'm going to show you how to play golf. But the, uh, the concept of wokeism goes much deeper than golf. It goes deep into the soul of America, where a history that's often cruel, unfair, and unjust tries to reconcile with what we desire to be a modern, just society. The concept speaks of systemic racism and critical race theory, as it tries to grapple with a shifting demographic where the rule by old white men is no longer a given, thus plunging our society into a territory that frightens the current power structure. The term wokeism itself is derived from the word woke, which used to refer to an enlightened person, a good thing really. But our collective lexicon is never static. It's always changing and terms like woke, as so many other terms in our history, have evolved to mean something less than virtuous. So to help us understand wokeism, we're joined by Dr. Michael Carson. Dr. Carson teaches at the University of Denver's Graduate School of Professional Psychology. He's practiced clinical and forensic psychology for 25 years before entering academia. He's authored or co-authored several books on psychology, and he has written dozens of short yet highly informative articles for Psychology Today, the world's largest mental health and behavioral science destination online, exclusively dedicated to the study of human behavior. So, Dr. Carson, thank you for joining us and welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good. So, in my research, I happened to come across the article that you wrote in Psychology Today, and it caught my attention. The article is called The Psychology of Wokeism, 
and the subtitle is Hate Requires Obliteration of Context. If I read it correctly, the direction of the article is to identify one of the key components, if not the key component of wokeism is, surprisingly to me anyways, hatred and intolerance. This is a part that really confuses me because I always thought that people who are woke in the original sense of the word renounce hatred and intolerance. Yet here we are talking about hatred and intolerance associated with being woke. So you started the article with a positive sense of the term woke, saying that, quote, a woke culture would be a pleasure to live in for everyone. So let's start at that point. How, what, is, what is the woke culture and walk us through how it evolved into hatred? Well, um, wokeness uh, first was a term in uh, black communities to talk about uh, a transitional process that was often observed where um, individuals, instead of getting along with an oppressive regime, would start to wake up and see what was happening. And this, of course, uh, brought up a lot of conflicting feelings uh, because one wants to assume that the world is a good place and that it has good intentions. Mm-hmm. But wokeness became a, a term applied to waking up to these kinds of injustices and unfairnesses in life. And uh, wokeness was, uh, you know, became more widespread term in the 60s and 70s when people were talking about um, becoming aware of systems of oppression and mm-hmm. Uh, marginalization in society in a larger extent. Applying it as a psychologist, uh, wokeness could be seen as a way of uh, relating to rather than trying to exclude or shut up marginalized aspects of any system. And the reason I think a woke world would be good for everyone is that we all have parts of ourselves or aspects of our own functioning that we're ambivalent about, and sometimes we marginalize rather than mm-hmm. welcome. Mm-hmm. But how how did it turn? How did it turn though? Because I mean, it, that seems like very positive uh, uh, attributes that you're identifying here. But it turned at some point, right? Yeah, and the way it uh, this has been a long, long story in the history of oppression and fighting against oppression. I think William Blake wrote a poem about. Uh, do you want to take the tyrant's place or do you want to put an end to tyranny? I think that it was embedded in the uh, thinking that led to the American Revolution. Are we going to set up our own system of aristocracy or are we going to try to create a democratic culture? And as woke individuals became more empowered, especially lately with a kind of change in um, America's uh, attitude towards um, progressive politics. Mm -hmm. As they became more empowered, are they going to use that power to get a seat at the table or are they going to get a use that power to get a seat at the head of the table and take over the table? Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, I think I quoted in that piece, Aldous Huxley really hit the nail on the head. He wrote, the surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people a chance of maltreating someone. Meaning that if you could find a way for your good cause to also satisfy this innate uh, lust for hatred, 
you'd be much more likely to get adherence than if you simply try to make the world a better place. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk about hatred. And what is what lies at the root of hatred in, in the human psyche? Well, humans seem to me to be an extraordinarily vicious, violent, and dangerous species. A shark will leave you alone if it's not provoked or very hungry. Mm -hmm. But a human might kill you for sport. So I have a sense that we often try to pretend that we're much more tame and collaborative species than we are. We are definitely capable of collaboration and kindness, but usually only with members of our own tribe. Mm -hmm. We may be hardwired to attack strangers or members of other tribes. So one way to think about hatred is we have this deep capacity for aggression, which presumably has served us in certain ways. One is we're dangerous. Another is by specializing in brain development as opposed to other kinds of physical attributes, mm -hmm. we had to have a very long infancy for children. Children had to be born into the world completely helpless in a way that is kind of unique in the entire animal kingdom. And to have a child that is that helpless may require parents who are especially fierce and capable of protection. Mm -hmm. So a lot of uh, different factors coalesce around the utility of aggression, uh, the potential for violence, and the um, experience of anger. And one way of uh, thinking of anger is that it's an emotion in when you're in the emotional state of anger, then seeing damage to whatever it is we say you're angry at becomes a reinforcement. So if you're angry at your car, you might kick it and, and imagine damaging it if you're Mm -hmm. or someone else's car, more likely. Or if you're angry at a person, you want to damage them in some way, either psychologically or right. physically. So it seems adaptive to have this large capacity of anger. And the, the quintessential emotion that facilitates the activation of our aggressive repertoire is hatred. In the same way that uh, troops whose job it is to protect our country and possibly um, do damage to other countries are activated and facilitated most by hatred also. So mm -hmm. much of training in, uh, in uh, combat is right. not only around group cohesion, but also around hatred of the enemy. Yeah, well, it, 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 um, my theory is that nobody really likes the likes to admit to having the emotion of hatred. So if you can dehumanize a person or a, a group of people to a point where you don't really feel like it's expression of hatred, it's just, it, it's a, it becomes more acceptable, I guess. Maybe you can sleep better at night knowing that you've done something to someone or some group of people because they were, you know, I don't know, like, 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 like the old West, like the wild West, the, 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 the Native Americans were, were called savages because it was a way of dehumanizing them and it made it easier perhaps to, um, to express hatred and to you know, commit essentially genocide at that point. I totally agree with that. I would add something to it. I mean, I agree with the part that 
we feel better about hatred if we imagine the people we hate to be evil mm -hmm. or inhuman. But I also think uh, even adding to that, that if you relate to another person, it's very hard to hate them. If yeah. you see them in the context of their own lives behaving according to something that makes sense for them. So one of the ways we facilitate our expression of hatred is to dehumanize people, not just because we're uncomfortable with hating, but also because if you understand that other people are also waking up in the morning trying to do what's best for themselves and their family and, you know, uh, led by forces in their lives that make sense to them, it's very difficult to hate someone then. Yeah. One of the, one of the old uh, strategies for dealing, there was uh, some terrorists kidnapped a bus in the Middle East and uh, were going to kill all the people on the bus. Mm -hmm. And apparently, this may be folklore, but apparently one of the victims started talking about his family and his job and his children and humanized himself to them. And they killed all the other people, but they couldn't bring themselves to kill him. And there's wow. this kind of general sense that violence is always facilitated by dehumanization. Yeah. That might, you know, just taking the opposite approach here and going down a, a diverting path here, what's that called? The uh, Stockholm syndrome, where yes. the, where the, people who are being victimized uh, reach out to the people, to the, to the perpetrators, basically, to try to humanize themselves to the perpetrators so that that exact scenario happens, that, that suddenly there's, there's, this, um, there's this relationship that develops, and then you, you, know, you start feeling for that person, you can no longer hate them, and therefore you can no longer bring yourself to uh, commit harm to them. That may be. I think um, Stockholm Syndrome may also relate though to what it's like to relate to somebody who has a lot of power over you and it may be that you then um, are impelled to see them positively and to uh, look up to them there's an old story of uh, uh, stalin starving ukraine into submission strangely relevant today yeah, yeah. and uh the uh, other commissars telling Stalin, you know, if you want the Ukrainians to love you, you should feed them. And Stalin laughs at them and says, you don't really understand anything about the animal kingdom. He brought in a chicken and plucked its feathers, I guess, in a way that were very uh, painful and then threw the chicken on the ground and the chicken runs up and rubs itself against its boot in an act of love. And Stalin said, that's how you get people to love you is... Hmm. By mistreating them. Yeah. I kind of heard that same story, and again, I'm digressing, but I thought that was, wasn't that yet just prior to World War II, because I think he wanted the Ukrainians to participate uh, in fighting, and they were still reluctant because they had been so mistreated, but I may be wrong about that. That's uh, Yeah, who, who knows, but yeah. um, the there is, you know, we often see in abused children an enhanced loyalty and love of the abuser. And mm -hmm. it may be that there is a, uh, you know, a built-in way of reacting to people who have a tremendous amount of power of you to see them in the best possible light yeah. and to try to get close to them. Huh. So getting back to wokeism then, is it, is it blindness then on, on, on the part of the person who's trying to be woke that they turn into 
the object of the thing that they despise. I mean, it, it, it's it's one thing to be aware of culture and class disparities, but it's quite another to feel empowered to police it without any sort of introspection. Yeah, I think there are uh, two major issues. One is, you know, it's, a, it's human nature to want to have a tremendous amount of power to have your way and to bend other people to your will. We often give ourselves a license to do that if we believe we're incapable of it. Mm -hmm. So part of the political messaging lately has been that if you're a person of color, say, or a woman, or um, in some ways identified as oppressed, you can't possibly be an oppressor. And this uh, becomes a license for tyranny of other people having given yourself that excuse. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, other people have other excuses. You know, some people think that because of their religious identification, they're incapable of being the bad guy in any story. And some people think because, you know, their place in their family, for example, they might be incapable. But, but once people decide that they're incapable of being the bad guy in any story, keep your distance. Yeah. And the, and the other thing for me is, um, it's what I've been calling smuggling lately, which is we create a blockade around ourselves to keep our worst impulses from getting out. Mm -hmm. And the, the ships in the blockade always fly some pro-social flag like morality or Christianity or, you know, Judaism or, you know, whatever we identify with, that's the good reason why we don't let our worst impulses get out. But then we find vessels that can run the blockade because they're flying the same flag and we smuggle our hatred and our negative, mm -hmm. you know, our worst impulses on board any vessel that can get through. And so it's not uncommon to, you know, see, for example, it's, it's, I think um, a lot of Christians feel about Christianity the way I feel about social justice, which is deeply proud of its core philosophy, but also dismayed at the way it can sometimes um, be a camouflage mm -hmm. for hurting people in, under you know, various arguments or conceptions. And um, it's quite natural, I think, for us to express our hatred in a way that is disguised as something positive. That's the second half of that Aldous Huxley quote is, you know, to behave badly and call your bad behavior righteous indignation is the most delicious of moral treats. Oh, yeah. 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 Kind of shows the hypocrisy in it as well. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So um, let's uh, talk a little bit more. Uh, well, there's this thing uh, that I that I'm uncomfortable with. It's another term. I think it's related to wokeism. I'm trying to figure out you know, where it fits on the wokeism spectrum. There's this thing called white privilege. And I've come across several people, including a past version of myself, I hate to admit. And these people will say things like, hey, I've struggled my whole life and my career like everyone else, but because I'm white, I was given certain allowances or breaks that helped me advance. In other words, I experienced this thing called white privilege. And I've lately been finding it troubling that people will, will say things like that, including a past version of myself, as I said. And to give you an example of where I'm coming from, I recently had an online conversation about white privilege with, with a person of color. 
And that person referred to white privilege as not being called a racial slur on the playground at school, as an example. And my response, I may have been right or wrong, but I, I think my response is right. My response was that, hey, every person has a right to expect, and the big word there is expect, every person has a right to expect to be treated with dignity and respect. And of course, a lot of people are denied that right as an act of racism or prejudice or whatever, but that doesn't mean that the people who experience that right are privileged in some sense. So here's the thing. Once you accept the idea that a white person has privilege, you are unconsciously taking that right away from people who are not white. Does that does it make sense, or am I being too woke in this case, do you think? I think the term white privilege is a very useful term for understanding what's going on in certain situations. Mm -hmm. And then like wokeness, it's become weaponized. Mm -hmm. um, and instead of trying to extend privilege to everyone, the effort lately has been to take it away from those who have it, which I guess is human nature to resent those who are better off. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't seem like a good idea. It seems like a better idea to raise everybody up than to lower everybody down. Right. Right. But to me, um, and to most, you know, social psychologists back in the day is that uh, privilege is any luxury of power that uh, comes to you because of your um, position in a given situation. It, it's so white privilege. The example I like I, is you know, you go to a restaurant, they seat you to an out, uh, outdoor restaurant and they seat you by the door. When you're white, you don't even think that they're putting you there because they want to keep an eye on you because they're afraid you're going to dine and dash. Mm -hmm. But if you're a person of color, you might think about that. Yeah. And it may not even be true, but it interferes with your absorption and the pleasure of the meal. Um, Another example I like, uh, Wanda Sykes, uh, I went to a comedy show of hers and she talked about a white friend and she walking on a hot day, they go into a convenience store and they both get a bottle of water out of the back and the white friend opens the water and starts drinking it on the way to the front. And that's the whole end of the story. But she points out that white people are in the audience might be more likely not to understand why that's an interesting story and black people in the audience are sitting on the edge of their seat thinking that something bad's about to happen because they're going to have to prove that they, mm -hmm. you know, weren't trying to steal the water. Yeah. So in some ways, the greatest, one of the greatest luxuries of privilege in any situation is not having to think about things like whether, whether you belong where you are, mm -hmm. whether you fit in. And one of the greatest costs of stigma in any situation it's just worrying that you don't belong where you are. Yeah. So I, I for one, think that there are, there's white privilege and there's black privilege and there's every other kind of privilege. But it's also true, in my opinion, that white privilege operates in many more situations than black privilege does. And especially true that it operates in many more of the situations that confer economic advantages. But, to, but what happened with privilege happened, what happened with wokeness happened with privilege, which it, it, 
it's stopping a way of understanding what's happening on a particular occasion and became a permanent stain on your character that, you know, like you've had somehow this cumulative advantages and that there's this kind of fantasy that, you know, white people just have every red carpet laid out for them and brown and black people are struggling, you know, to climb. And I, I think if you keep it situational, it makes a lot more sense and is a lot more useful concept. But when you abstract it from its situations and it has all those characteristics we talked about that facilitate hatred, which is then you can just really get angry at somebody for, um, for being white. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about um, social justice. It, there was one question I had, if you could draw some of the parallels between social justice at the societal level versus a family level and individual level and how this might tie into our discussion about wokeism. So social justice just means fairness outside the courtroom. You know, criminal justice is in a courtroom. Civil justice is in a courtroom. And social justice just means fairness outside the courtroom. I, 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 it doesn't seem like a controversial term mm -hmm. until it gets weaponized. Right. Uh, but so... Social justice is often um, brought up as an antidote when in a society, certain people are either oppressed or marginalized. And I think it's really interesting to think about how families often oppress and marginalize certain people's people, but even more likely certain behaviors or mm -hmm. certain ways of being get marginalized or oppressed in families. Uh, so, for example, some families are very bad with weakness. Some are very bad with success. Some are very bad with sexuality and some are very bad with aggression. And they can marginalize and oppress those aspects of family members. And then individuals, just on our own, we have a whole psychology going on inside of us and certain aspects of ourselves get oppressed or marginalized. So you might dump on yourself for, you know, liking high calorie food, or you might dump on yourself for wanting to get a certain kind of uh, gift for yourself or car or, mm -hmm. you know, your own way of expressing sexuality or competition, all these things we can marginalize in ourselves. So I often think with my colleagues who are working on, um, on a more societal level, Mm -hmm. But they're trying to do in society what I'm trying to do, training people to work with individuals, which is to accept and welcome all the parts of the self for the individual in a parallel way that a healthy society would welcome and try to integrate all of the different people in the in the social realm. But when it comes to things like hatred, one of the wisdom words of wisdoms I've words of wisdom I've heard in the past is that when you when you have a sense of hatred for someone else, you're actually seeing a reflection of something in yourself that that you don't like. Is that is there any to uh, truth? Totally to that? agree. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know if it's true, but I totally agree. Uh, George Eliot wrote in Middlemarch. Uh, um, a man likes to assume superiority over himself by holding up his own bad example and sermonizing on it. And that's not exactly hatred, but it does capture that, that 
reason for why we're putting other things down and warning against them is often there's something in ourselves there. And it, it does, you know, fit with this wokeism mentality mm -hmm. that this, uh, um, you know, uh, war against tyranny is uh, a war against an eternal uh, desire to tyrannize others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's where that's where I was getting at with wokeism then, because you, you take a person who is who's making that transition from woke to wokeism, if you can allow me to get away with that uh, lexicon there. And in other words, you're making this this transition from being enlightened to, you know, sort of exploring their side of hatred. And what the, what you end up with is, is someone that uh, is upset about other people that hate, right, racism or hate for you know, prejudice or hate or racism or whatever. And then they don't like that. So they basically become an anti-racist racist, I guess, for lack of a better term, which is the transition then to wokeism. Is that, am I making that, am I, am I kind of getting those dots correctly in my head? Yeah, I don't think that's the necessarily the primary um, expression of hatred and wokeism. I, I think it's human nature to enjoy making other people cower in front of you. And if you can admit that, in my opinion, you're much more likely to manage it mm -hmm. uh, than if you can't admit it. And so this posturing of being harmless and uh, a do-gooder and only interested in what's best for people, in my opinion, is what gives free reign to all the hatred that we see now in the uh, woke mm -hmm. subsystems. Okay. And I guess one of, the, one of the arsenals or one of the weapons in their arsenal of the wokeism person would be cancel, what they call cancel culture, right? Where they yes. crusade against somebody because that person said something wrong, either intentionally or otherwise, or maybe they didn't even say it wrong, but it was interpreted by these wokeism police force, if, if you'll pardon the expression, to be wrong. And then they suddenly find themselves in the wrong end of things. Yeah, I agree. I think, you know, it's, it's fair to say, I believe that all cultures are cancel cultures in the sense that every culture, however small or however large, has certain rules of behavior they expect. And if you don't follow the rules, they, you get sent a pretty clear message that you need to uh, straighten up and fly right or um, make yourself scarce. The viciousness of it with the uh, current cancel culture among the wokeism crowd is what's um, highly noticeable to me. And I also think that what's unusual about it or what fosters it is that the typical progressive is in a very difficult position now. The typical progressive doesn't really want to speak up and get canceled themselves. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, I have a sense that the number of really true believers in communism or Maoism or uh, even Nazism were pretty small. And what led to those becoming such pathological uh, societies was that you couldn't speak up against them anymore. So the thing that, you know, I'm really concerned about is 
the silencing of the majority who thinks that people are overreacting. Mm-hmm. That's um, just interesting um, example of that is we had Kenny Chu on this uh, podcast a few weeks back. He wrote this book called An Inconvenient Minority. And just today, just before we went on the air, actually, I saw him throw out a tweet there saying he wants to write a book uh, that involves uh, black people. And um, he is very concerned that he won't get it right and he'll end up, you know, on the, on the losing end of this cancel culture and, you know, uh, suffer for it because of what he would consider the wokeism police. Uh, my response to him was, go ahead and go for it because, you know, you, you can't live in that fear. Otherwise, I think like you say, um, you give too much power. You see too much power to what I would think would be turn out to be somewhat of a minority of people. Yeah. Um, the foundation for individual rights and education found that a quarter of all college students, mainly people on the left say that it's okay to use violence to keep someone from speaking on campus. That's Mm -hmm. an amazing, amazing statistic. But, um, the reason I thought of it is because, uh, it's easy to tell someone good, then you should go ahead and speak on campus but it's kind of scary. And what it needs is uh, university administrators to stand up and say that academic freedom of expression is still a core value of universities and will be defended. But every university is afraid of getting canceled, Mm -hmm. losing students, losing funding, and losing supporters. So every university administrators are standing aside and letting things happen. Yeah. Wow. Wasn't there this thing called the uh, tolerance paradox? Have you ever heard of that? No. Oh, I was hoping you would have because um, <laughs> I read an article about it a few days ago, but it has something to do with uh, with where where we draw the line as an organized society, where we draw the line. And we can, we could draw the line uh, of, of being too tolerant and even tolerant of the intolerant people. And eventually what happens if you become too tolerant of the intolerant people, the intolerant people take over. And I think that's called the tolerance paradox. It was, I forgot the author's name. He, it was back in the 1940s when he created this paradox or when he wrote about the paradox. And um, yeah, I, I, kind of, I kind of see that happening in, in, in college campuses. But I want to get back to something you talked about earlier with, with progressive people being in a difficult position because most of the non-progressive people want to paint progressive people as woke, you know, in in the bad sense of the word woke. But I don't really think that's necessarily the case, but I can see where, you know, a lot of people's hands are tied now, because if you want to say something progressive, um, you just have to be really, really careful in what you say and how you say it, because you'll find yourself on the wrong end of this, uh, on this um, on this war that's going on. Yeah, I think the one of the underlying problems is that you have to choose a team, and the only teams available are wokeism and white supremacy, and mm. no one no yeah. one I know wants to be on either team. Yeah. Well, that's the that's the uh, dichotomy of society, which brings me to another point here, which um, will we'll deal with separation, uh, separation of people, and. Um, just an example here. My dad used to tell me this, that th- as soon as you start separating people, in fact, if you, as soon as you start putting a wall between two people 
or two types of people, the first thing that breaches that wall is mistrust. So the words us and them suddenly start to dominate you know, the conversations among people on each side of that wall. And um, so this concept of separation, is this, could this also be what fosters hatred in, in, in the sense that it, it starts with mistrust and then it becomes hatred? Absolutely. I, I'm, uh, you know, in my own field, I'm alarmed at some things that are happening. Uh, one of which we were just talking about, which is that uh, psychotherapies are no longer, that's not quite, that's an overstatement, but many people are conceptualizing psychotherapy, not as a way to help someone stop oppressing themselves, not as a way to help someone live their life more meaningfully and deliberately, but as a way, only as a way to overcome their history of being oppressed. And that means that if a white man goes into psychotherapy, the therapists now, there are therapists now who don't see them as someone who needs help. They see them as someone who has to own their, you know, oppressive nature. Hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but another thing that's happening in my field related to what you just said is that white men are being told that they can't really understand or relate to black women and straight people can't really understand or relate to gay people. I, I find that kind of chilling. I, uh, hmm. um, put on Facebook recently, uh, you know, there's a whole area of knowledge meant to help us understand people who aren't like us. It's called psychology. Yeah. And I, I feel like this idea that we can read literature and study psychology and get to know strangers and find out about other people has become controversial. And instead we're supposed to say you're other from me and therefore we can never uh, know each other. Well, that's a big loss because, you know, it, this becomes separation. It may not be a physical wall separating people, but it becomes separated based on fear, I guess, the fear that, you know, um, you don't understand the other person. But there's also vice versa of this whole thing too, right? If people, um, if, if people are already separated or if, if people already have hatred, they will separate themselves as well. So yes. and they, will, they will advocate for other people to separate them. Yeah, and I think that is a um, trenchant explanation about why social media is making things worse. Mm -hmm. Because we don't need walls anymore. If you're staring into a screen, you're likely only to be surrounded by us and not them. Mm -hmm. Well, because you can pick what you watch, right? There's so many channels on TV now. Um, well, um, you pick, but also Facebook, Facebook picks for you. Yeah. 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 And in, in the media, too, I'm, I'm sort of impressed, sort of. Um, building on your idea here that, um, you know, when I was a kid, there was this, you know, basically three TV stations, <laughs> ABC, right. NBC, and CBS. And now you have, uh, you have uh, you know, Fox, of course, but you have a lot of other uh, media uh, channels available and people will put themselves into that wall, right? They'll, they'll, they'll look at one channel that reinforces what they may have as a preconceived notion and they'll get that reinforcement off that channel and they'll they'll begin to think well there must be some truth to this because hey this other guy in tv is talking about the same thing yeah and this is fostered by the right with this um 
rhetorical flip of fake news. Mm -hmm. So that even if you are facing uh, contradictory evidence, you can dismiss it. And we have the same on the left with uh, postmodernism, where you know you can explain away any fact, and instead the only thing that really matters is so-called lived experience, which to me is very suspect. Yeah. Huh. And the rest of us are caught in between, trying to make sense of it one way or another. So, what do you what do you yeah. what do you suppose is the end game for wokeism? Is it or is it like most institutions of hatred, where the expression of hatred is the end game? Oh well, I think its end game is the expression of hatred. I'm, I'm uh, old enough to have seen time and time and time again the left undermine progressive victories in a quest for purity. The latest, most, you know, biggest example to me of that is this desire to stop naming schools after Abraham Lincoln because winning the war and freeing the slaves wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. He, he didn't do it in a pure enough way. He didn't yeah. go down with the ship. I, I feel like the left is, you know, this kind of moral masochism where they just want to, um, I should say we, we'd rather lose gloriously than, than, you know, have a positive effect. And so I, I do think that the um, uh, woke objective unconsciously is both to hate and to be pure and and uh, and and righteous in in their hatred, but in terms of uh, the larger end game, I think it's coming very quickly. I think this year there's going to be a massive landslide uh, for the Republicans mm -hmm. because I think that you know when I say massive landslide, I think there's something like eight percent of the electorate decides you know, every election. Yeah. And I think that people are, um, you know, this just happened in San Francisco where they threw out three, uh, recalled three school board members who were more worried about schools being named after George Washington than they were about getting the schools open during the pandemic. And speaking of schools, I think one of the, one of the criticisms I hear from the right, from the, from the Republican slash right, um, is that they are afraid because of critical race theory, they're afraid of children being taught to hate America. But what a twist that is, right? Because, you know, there you have a set of people, and I think most progressives are not woke in that sense, but they want honest history to be taught. They want the history of, you know, the good stuff and the bad stuff. And there's some pretty pretty bad stuff in our in, in America's past. And if you don't come to grips with it, and if you don't talk about it, how are you going to avoid it? And yet they're at the same time, it can be misconstrued or mis, uh, misrepresented in a way that it's teaching children to hate America. Yes. And, but I think that sometimes that is exaggerated on both sides. You know, again, critical race theory to me is like wokeness and privilege. Brilliant, brilliant set of ideas. Uh, maybe the, um, simplest version of which is that, you know, some, sometimes discrimination operates with no ill intent. It's just unintentional. Mm -hmm. And those, those episodes can be in, uh, discovered, enlightened, explored, and the policies that drive them can change. That's the brilliant part of 
critical race theory. What's so brilliant about it is it's saying you don't have to point fingers at people and hate them. You can identify policies that are operating uh, with uh, racially biased effects mm-hmm. and change those. But now it's become this uh, battle between do you love America or are you going to say that racism is everywhere and um, uh, there's nothing good about uh, the history of our country? And, and it seems to me that one of the really interesting things about our country, well, I let me throw something in on my own as a forensic psychologist, um, two interesting things. One is the people who made up our system of government were all criminals. I think that's worth reflecting on at some point when you wonder why so much of the Bill of Rights is about the rights of criminals and um, subpoena power and things like that. I think the fact that they were all criminals gave them a different kind of mindset about um, how to uh, protect citizens from the criminal justice system. But the other thing that I think is so interesting is that they were slave owners. And instead of saying, that, well, that must mean that they're all bad people because they own slaves. I think it's maybe deeper than that and more, in, more interesting than that about how they became so acutely aware of how power can be misused and why checks and balances are so important. Yeah. Well, in, in, yeah, I think you have to take everything in context, too. And also, from what I understand of the founding fathers, yes, they were criminals because they knew that if they were captured by the Brits, they would have been hung. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's, and, uh, you know, they, yeah, I can see where that the whole argument comes from. Yeah, so there is this purity that you talk about. There's this hatred, purity, righteousness, uh, and power. Boy, oh boy, I mean, that, all, that almost, that could describe uh, the wokeism person <laughs> as well as a racist person, correct? I mean, they're they're kind of like being painted uh, maybe different brushes, but kind of the same color, though, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I think that there is a kind of woke zealot who puts people in boxes, labels them privileged, and then treats them badly. Yeah. And th- that is substantially different from racism in the sense that you can pass if you're um, privileged. And the, the way progressives currently are passing is by saying they own their privilege and that they're you know imperfect allies and all these other ways of abasing themselves. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's the same fundamental human motivation of finding bad people and just going to town on them. Yeah. Hmm. Well, a couple of questions remain here. We're, we're starting to run up on the end of time here, but I wanted to ask you a question because I know this is in your resume and you mentioned it a couple of times. What is forensic psychology, just out of curiosity? Forensic psychology is applying psychology to the court system. Mm-hmm. So that means any involvement in criminal or civil legal matters is the that area of psychology. For me, it was mainly um, working with kids who were uh, abused or neglected and evaluating their parents. For others, it has to do with... Um, evaluating criminals for competency to stand trial or for insanity, legal insanity defense. And for others, it might be um, assessing 
psychological injury after a, an accident of some sort. Yeah, okay. Because I saw that term and I was just sort of curious about that. I, I had this uh, impression that you were also involved in the investigation side of things, but I guess you're more involved in the, well, I guess somewhat investigation, right? You're trying to find out context to everything. As yes, but um, yeah, the, but the um, main use meaning of forensic is simply court related. Oh, okay. Okay. So do you have any final thoughts on the topic of wokeism? Well, for me, the issue is, what does the word we mean when we say we the people, or we say, you know, who's in our tribe? And I, I would hope that our ongoing effort is to expand the sense of tribe as much as possible. And then how expansive it should be remains uh, political, economic, and social matter. It's nice to say to include all humanity. That's the direction I think we'd like to go in, but it doesn't really seem realistic to try to include all humanity in a we, for example, you know, we all pay taxes and we don't necessarily, can't necessarily afford to distribute the welfare, you know, mm -hmm. worldwide, but maybe everybody in America could become a we, that would be a nice thing that that was, sort of the idea in the constitution with the notable exception of slaves and American Indians. Mm -hmm. But I think uh, examining and exploring what's meant by we is a route to understanding what's wrong with wokeism, which is they don't mean you and me, Dan, mm -hmm. and what's wrong with um, racism and uh oppression and white supremacy is that they also don't mean anything like most people. And I, and that's a complicated um, mm -hmm. uh, and difficult uh, path to follow. But I, I do think that that simple idea of Obama's expression of, you know, it's not red and blue, it's America. That would get us a lot in the direction of, um, you know, solving some of this uh, divisiveness and separation. But there's power in divisiveness. I mean, it, it, I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I would certainly like to think most Americans would think of themselves as part of a tribe, um, of their own tribe. And in fact, my wife is from the Netherlands, and one of the things that she observed is every time we start a football game or a baseball game or whatever, she loves the national anthem. And, uh -huh. I, and part of it is because uh, as I told her in the beginning, it's like we may be on different teams. We may, our our city, uh, St. Louis, might be playing against Cincinnati or something like that. But at the end of the day, uh, or should I say at the beginning of the game, we all stand together. We're all one. And we sing the national anthem together. And that makes us all the same tribe, even though we have these little divisions between us. And uh, that's a thrill, really. And I think that's, that is a good place I think we should go for. Yeah, it's just more complicated for us. One of the things you notice about the Netherlands, of course, is that they're almost all Dutch. And it's not just that they all speak Dutch. They're the only people who speak Dutch. And uh, I know you can say the same about Norway, you know, many, many other countries. America's really different in that respect. We really are, a, I mean, it's our strength, but it also... Um, is a, you know, red flag for hatred. Yeah. 
So let's wrap it up here with our call to action. You do a lot of publishing. You publish a lot of books. Uh, is there any place people can, any places that people can go to uh, catch up on some of your writing and um, some of your books, perhaps? Well, my books are mainly technical work for clinicians. So my blog on Psychology Today is a place where I'm trying to write for um, a wider audience, and mm -hmm. most of my ideas are up on that blog. Okay. Yeah, I've uh, I've seen your articles there, and the one that I'm, that we're talking about for this discussion here was, uh, I would say it's a fairly short read, but I got to tell you, I really enjoyed it, and that's why I wanted to get a hold of you to try to get you on the podcast here. Uh, I'm also researching other material. There's this book by uh, I don't I don't know if you ever heard of John McWhorter. He's yeah, a... I just finished it. Woke racism. Oh yeah, woke racism. I am trying to hack my way through that book because. There is, uh, I find myself having to read the same paragraph sometimes, you know, two or three times to absorb it because it's pretty compact. Uh, and he kind of has this theory that, that uh, wokeism is more of a religion in a sense. It's, yeah, I, I think he makes a compelling case that it, it's uh, a religion in the sense of unquestioned tenets about what's right and what's wrong and how that explains a lot of the behavior of the woke. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a good book, and I've uh, I've actually tried to invite him on the podcast as well. I haven't heard back from him yet, but uh, I'll have to finish his book first and see if we can get him on the air here. So we've been talking with Dr. Michael Carson, who teaches at the University of Denver's Graduate School of Professional Psychology. He has authored or co-authored numerous books and articles. You can read some of his many articles on Psychology Today's website at psychologytoday.com. It's all one word, psychologytoday.com. So thank you, Dr. Carson, for your time. I really appreciate you stopping by. Nice talking to you. Thank you. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>